This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, the extraordinary story of the microbiome in our mouths. Amazingly, many of the bugs in our mouths are similar, if not identical, to what our ancient primate, primate ancestors had in their mouths. And how young women are putting on more weight faster than the cohorts who went before them. Brain banking, not just a repository of human brains, far more sophisticated than that. And the latest research on sitting. Professor David Dunstan and his colleagues at the Baker Institute in Melbourne have published a review of the evidence on the toxicity of sitting for long periods, the relationship with physical inactivity in general, and just what it means to get off your bottom. David, welcome back to the Health Report. Oh, thanks for having me. So what is it about sitting? Well, sitting, uh, well, if you put it down to the most basic, it is the absence of our skeletal muscle activity. And that can have uh, an enormous consequences for a number of the body's regulatory systems, particularly blood pressure and, uh, and blood glucose control. I'll come back to what the consequences are. But in previous papers I've read on this, in fact, indeed covered on the health report, it appears that sitting is contextual. That if you're sitting in front of, you know, you're at work or in front of the computer, it seems to be less toxic than if you're sitting in front of the telly. Yeah, for, for, for some outcomes, particularly those mental health um, outcomes, uh, there appears to be some evidence showing that those more passive type of uh, sedentary behaviours, like you mentioned, television uh, viewing time, uh, appear to be uh, detrimental to mental health outcomes, whereas the reverse is true for those, those more cognitive stimulating um, sedentary behaviours, like working on a computer and reading a book, for example. So uh, that, that's for the mental health outcomes. But, um, I thought obesity uh, was more likely if you're sitting in front of the telly or a gaming well, console. One. Uh, well, that's uh, not one that I'm, uh, you know, um, familiar with. But, um, of course, long hours spent uh, in, in a sedentary behaviour is likely to be uh, conducive to increasing risk. So give me the list of problems. Um, so there's now pretty strong evidence uh, showing that uh, excessive sitting uh, is associated with a, a, a host of uh, health conditions like type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, um, some cancers. But importantly, um, uh, perhaps where the strongest evidence exists is uh, that there is an increase uh, in the risk of early um, mortality. Um, so I, I think we've we now got uh, even stronger evidence to really you know, emphasise that message that you know, sitting um, does increase uh, uh, the risk of a number of chronic conditions. Now... But it's not independent of your general physical activity because, again, what's a paper we covered a little while ago was that you can counter the effects of sitting by going to the gym or getting exercise every day. Yeah, so um, we've become more sophisticated in how we measure um, this in large populations, and and what it does, the evidence does appear to be that uh, that those who are um, more very physically active, so for instance, that they're, they're getting that sixty to ninety minutes per day of um, moderate activity, that appears to cancel out the uh, the health hazards of um, too much sitting. But at the other end of the spectrum, those who are, are highly physically inactive have the greatest risk associated with um, too much sitting. So really, um, we, we should be concentrating on both of these behaviours, inactivity and also uh, getting people to um, sit less and move more. So I mean, the question is, is, is it sitting? Is there an independent effect of sitting versus physical inactivity? Because there's been a controversy over standing because people have said, well, you know, there was a whole 
fad at one point or phase at one point where everyone's getting standing desks. I'm standing at a standing desk right now. And people say, well, standing actually didn't pay off in terms of not sitting because you end up just standing still rather than moving around. Yeah, so I, I think um, it, it does depend on the outcome that you're looking at. Um, for instance, for bone health, that standing may may be beneficial. But um, in terms of energy expenditure, standing still is uh, uh, much less than um, moving and moving fast. So I think if we think about um, benefit, um, we're more likely to get uh, benefits from um, moving more rather than simply standing still. But I guess standing um, does uh, um, uh, cut out the time spent sitting. So um, you know, the less time we spend sitting throughout the day, um, the the the, uh, the better in terms of health outcomes. Is that wishful thinking, or there's evidence to suggest it? That, that's what that's what I was driving at. So you've got all these people standing around; they're just giving themselves bad backs and um, not helping themselves at all. Well, I think um, the, the the key message with the height adjustable workstations is that um, uh, we should be encouraging people to alternate between postures, and and, and um, a, a good guide is so to spend. Uh, to just spend half an hour, um, you know, uh, sitting while working, and half an hour, um, you know, standing while working. But in, uh, what that does is it, it provides the, uh, the the worker with the opportunity to work in an upright posture or, um, or a seated posture. Whereas traditionally, you know, uh, a seated desk, it is one posture, and it's one posture for many hours throughout the day. So, what works then in terms of getting off your bum? What works is uh, getting those large muscle groups of the of the legs active again, and of course, uh, just the simple act of standing, ha- we we have to engage a, a number of muscles. But of course, when we move, we are uh, engaging them more effectively. So I think the the key is that anything that allows you to move is uh, uh, likely to um, uh, be beneficial for many of the body's regulatory processes. Now you spoke about you know, an hour a day of exercise, probably countering about eight hours of sitting um so that requires a lot of time and investment um does any you know the the role of incidental exercise you're getting up and walking around the office walking around the house if you're locked down i mean what's the story there yeah, I think um, increasingly we're seeing that um, the, the total time that is spent in physical activity um, appears to um, be beneficial for a number of um, health outcomes. So uh, I think the the message here is that um, the accumulation of physical activity, you know, one minute here, five minutes there, um, you know, throughout the day is going to be beneficial for, for health and, and of course, um, uh, sitting is the inverse of uh, physical activity. So when we're sitting, uh, we are um, diminishing our um, amount of physical activity that, we, that occurs across the day. We're just out about of time, and is, there's a direct link to preventing heart disease and diabetes and cancer, if you do it? Um, well, the, the epidemiological evidence does show that there uh, that those who, who sit less and, and replace their sitting with um, activity do have a, uh, a reduced risk of uh, developing uh, cardiovascular disease and also type 2 diabetes. Health reporters, get off your bum. David, thanks John, mm-hmm. for joining us. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Professor David Dunson heads the Physical Activity Lab at the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute in Melbourne. And this is Iron's Health Report with Tegan Taylor and me, Norman Swan. We've been hearing for decades now that Australians are getting heavier and that it's increasing our risk of things like heart uh, disease, diabetes and cancer. 
New research has homed in on this further, looking specifically at young women. They're also getting bigger at an accelerating rate, and some of the health effects this is having are surprising. Professor Wendy Brown and her colleagues have looked at two cohorts of women, one born in the 1970s, one born in the late 80s and early 90s, tracked their weight for four years when, when these women were both in their early 20s, The women who were born later were almost four kilograms heavier at the start of the study and gained weight at twice the rate over the same period of time as those born in the 70s. It sounds like one of those maths problems that you were given in primary school. Welcome, Wendy Brown. Welcome to The Health Report. Thanks, Tegan. That was a lovely summary. Thank you. (laughs) Well, four kilos isn't really a huge amount and neither is the average amount of weight that these women gained each year, a kilo or so. Why does this matter? Well, think about it. I don't know how much you weigh, but the average weight of these women was um, in the second cohort. This is the the millennial women was 66.5 when they started. And although four kilos in four years isn't very much, it's 1.7%. If you project that out to when they're 40 years old, they're going to be 93.2 kilos, which is a little bit scary for most women who are now 66.5. It's a BMI of 33 and Um, We all know that's associated with multiple health problems. Can you extrapolate that out, though? What did the earlier cohort of women tell you about how reliable this was to be able to extrapolate? Well, we were actually quite amazed. So we have followed the first cohort who were born in 1973. So we call them our Gen Y cohort. We've now followed them for 25 years. We started the study in 1996. So 25 years later, we know what their weight has done. We know how it's increased over time. And from those projections in the first four years with that cohort, we predicted that their weight at 40 would be 76 kilos. And it was with our projection. And it was actually when we followed them and looked at the data. So we know that even projecting this first four-year period, which is quite surprising, we we can project out to age 40 Notwithstanding all of the diets and all of the fads and all of the things that women do, I think we can accurately predict that this millennial cohort are going to be very heavy by the time they're 40 years old, on average, of course. Talking about weight and women is fraught for a lot of different reasons, but there are really clear health outcomes that are associated with this that you also tracked. One of them was urinary incontinence. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting problem because we all know that urinary incontinence is a big problem in women and we um, traditionally thought it was something to do with or mostly to do with having babies and of course when you have a baby the pelvic floor is impacted and that often causes urinary incontinence. But what we're seeing in these millennial women is that many of them are reporting urinary incontinence even before they have babies and the ones that are most at risk of incontinence are, of course, the ones who are already heavier in their early 20s. So it's not really an issue of um, of just having babies. And when these women do start to have babies, because many of them are still nulliparous at age 20, 22, um, when they do start to have babies, we think this problem is going to get even worse. So the conversation around obesity is often framed as a failing on an individual level, or at least that's how many women receive it. Uh, But that's not really the only answer. Are there structural factors that are driving this increase in weight and what changes might help reverse it? Well, you know, the determinants of, of weight gain are really complicated and we've 
probably, I don't know how many listeners have seen the, the complex pictures that we see in scientific reports, but basically it comes down, I think, to three kind of groups of factors. There's the physical environment in which we live, there's the social environment, and of course, there are a lot of individual factors as well. So if we think about physical environments, we hear an awful lot in, in the obesity literature about making the environment more um, friendly for movement. So we can put in bikeways and walkways and all kinds of things to encourage us to be active. But if you're a young woman, certainly as these women go into their 20s and around 30s and early 30s and they're working full-time and they have small children and still doing the majority of home care and shopping and cooking, um, then having a bikeway is not really that useful if you've got to drop children off at school and pick up the shopping on the way home. Um, you know, you, you really do need a car and we find in, in other studies that it's usually the men that are doing the active transport when, when these facilities are put in rather than the women on the whole. So the physical environment is of course important but maybe at this life stage maybe the social environment's more important so getting access and affordability and dealing with the time constraints providing social support for women but what's often forgotten is the individual factors. I think so many women do not understand that this problem is um, really attributable to a very small energy gap. I mean, it sounds, as you said, it doesn't sound very much. It's 1.7% of your weight per year. And that's equivalent to like eating an extra Tim Tam mm -hmm. or perhaps um, not doing 20 or 30 minutes of activity. So, you know, you don't have to make huge changes to prevent this weight gain, but they've got to be made every single day. It's like compound interest in a bank, I think, where you start with a certain weight and every day it goes up a little bit and the interest compounds. But if you can stop it happening in young adulthood, I think it's going to be very good, uh, very much better health when you get to 40 or 50 or 60. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us on The Health Report. You're welcome. Thank you. Professor Wendy Brown from the School of Human Movement and Nutrition Sciences at the University of Queensland. Thanks, Tegan. Sounds trite and obvious to say it, but it's almost unimaginable how much has changed in human existence since our ancestors lived hundreds of thousands of years ago. But mind-bending research just published has found that the one thing you'd have thought would have changed enormously hasn't. That's the microbiome in our mouths, the oral microbiome. The variety of microbes that live in, around our teeth and gums. Of course, over recent years, we've learned just how vital the microbiome is to our health, and it was no different for our primate ancestors. Professor Christina Warriner and her colleagues have examined skeletal mouths going back to ancient monkeys and hominids and compared the findings to modern humans. I spoke to her earlier. Your dental plaque periodically calcifies throughout your life. In fact, it's the only part of your body that fossilizes while you're still alive. So a lot of people do spend quite a lot of money to remove this dental calculus or tartar from their teeth, but actually it's really valuable. It forms a record of your oral microbiome and it acts also as a sink of your daily life. Um, we see all sorts of things that become embedded in it, everything from seasonal pollen to fibers from clothing to tiny bits of food. And because it calcifies, it's really well protected. It preserves as well as the rest of the skeleton. And we can actually go back in time and study it and study people's lives and their microbiome through all of human history. So you've looked at various primates and through to hominids and compared to modern humans. Take us through that journey. What have you found? So we started this because we wanted to understand 
just how much the oral microbiome has changed and over what timescales. And so we thought we'd take a really big bird's eye view. So we looked not only at living humans today and also archeological humans from the recent past, we also looked in the more distant human past, going back to the Paleolithic. We also looked at Neanderthals. And then we looked at our closest living primate relatives. So chimpanzees, uh, gorillas, and even further afield, howler monkeys. And we wanted to know to what degree the oral microbiomes remained similar or changed over time as primates evolved and changed quite dramatically in their habits and feeding behaviors. And also as we as humans dramatically altered our own lives through culture and the invention of new technologies. Not to mention sugar. <laughs> Absolutely. So what did you find? We found a number of things. One thing that was quite interesting is we did see that in general, different genera, meaning a gorilla or pan, which is chimpanzees, or homo, which is humans and Neanderthals, within each genus, there was a lot of shared bacteria, shared groups, and each genus was a little bit different from the others. However, there was actually a lot more sharing of bacterial groups over really long evolutionary time periods than we had expected. So we identified 10 groups of bacteria, 10 also at the genus level that have been maintained essentially from howler monkeys to humans. So these are 10 groups of bacteria that have co-evolved with us for over 40 million years. So those were really interesting because one of the biggest surprises we had in that group was, although it included a few groups of bacteria that were quite familiar to dentistry, actually some of the bacteria that have evolved with us the longest and seem to be really important are some of the least studied in all of oral microbiology. To us, this pointed to the fact that we need a lot more research on these bacteria because since they have existed with us for so long, they may be keys to understanding oral health, and yet they're so understudied in some cases that they don't even have names yet. So they dental researchers things. have been focusing on, well, may have been focusing on the wrong bacteria. Well, you know, oral what? microbiology has focused for a long time on bacteria that cause disease. Caries. And there has been dental decay. comparatively little research on bacteria associated with health. So why, given that a howler monkey has lives in a very different environment from a modern human. What's your explanation for this extraordinary, mind-blowing finding that there's been this continuity of bacteria when you imagine this is probably the most environmentally sensitive part of your body? It's a great question. And we think it has to do with the way the oral microbiome forms. The oral microbiome is really unusual compared to other body sites. It forms this incredible structure. If you look microscopically at what the oral biofilm, the oral microbiome looks like, it almost forms like skyscrapers. It's a whole ecology. It looks like a rainforest or a complex city. So the bacteria are not randomly distributed. They have these really interesting spatial aspects to them where certain bacteria grow together and support one another. Um, you have these enormous structures that from a bacterial perspective are absolutely massive, that they grow in concert with each other. And so there's so much coordination across so many different types of bacteria to build these really amazing structures that we think that many of these kind of functional pairs between them have been maintained over long periods of time. And this may constrain their ability to change because there are so many moving parts within this whole structure. And so 
that was also something that we noticed was that the bacteria that have been with us the longest are bacterial groups that appear to play major structural roles in anchoring the microbiome, in initiating the microbiome, in shuttling different bacteria across the microbiome. So we think that this broader structure is really important and maintaining that structure is really important. The question is how it's transmitted. So they say that a newborn baby has a sterile mouth, but very soon afterwards gets populated. I mean, is this passed down from mother and father or relative to child, or is the baby born with it? Do we know? This is a great question. So the baby, as it's being born, if it's being born through the birth canal, rapidly acquires a lot of vaginal bacteria all over its body. But even shortly after birth, they're constantly taking in new types of microbes, in particular in their mouth. Our mouths are the gateway to the interior of our bodies. It's constantly being exposed to the outside world. And so the baby is then exposed through breastfeeding to um, the skin microbiome around the nipple. It's exposed also through parents feeding the child. And even today, people will help chew up some food for the baby when they give it to them as they're transitioning into uh, solid foods. There's lots of kissing. There's lots of transmission going on. So there's many, many opportunities for the microbiome to be transmitted to a human infant. But what we see is if you look for patterns across families, across time, what we see is that primarily it's caregivers are the dominant source of the child's developing microbiome. So the child's microbiome tends to reflect its caregiver. And dental researchers would say, well, if your mother's got poor dental health, they're going to transmit what's called karyogenic bacteria. But sitting behind that would be this continuity going back literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. Yeah, absolutely. It's really amazing how very efficient this transfer has been over this enormous amount of time. There's huge interest in um, you know, faddish paleo diets and prebiotic priming of the microbiome. Was there any change frame shift at the Paleolithic during the Stone Age? It's a great question. You know, a lot of people have thought that we would see really large transitions with, say, to agriculture or other um, major human life-changing events. We don't see it that much reflected in the oral microbiome, to be honest. We do see shifts in the gut microbiome that come in, especially later, that seem to be associated with changing dietary behaviors. But the oral microbiome is remarkably stable, um, at least at the level that we're currently able to analyze it. And in part, that actually makes a lot of sense. Although so much food goes through our mouths, the food that we eat actually spends very little time in our mouths and compared to our gut, where perhaps you might be digesting food for 20, 24 hours. Um, in your mouth, it's rather transient. Actually, most of the bacteria in your mouth primarily feed off of your saliva and other secretions within your mouth. And so they're much more impacted by the quality of your saliva, the amount of your saliva, than they are necessarily by your foods. Now, there are some exceptions to that. So high amounts of dietary sugar can definitely promote the growth of caries, for example. And we also saw something really interesting with respect to the human oral microbiome when we compared them to chimpanzees, if you compare chimpanzees to homo, one of the biggest differences that's apparent is we see this massive increase in a group of bacteria called streptococcus. Now, some people know that one species of streptococcus, streptococcus mutans, is associated with cavities. But actually the group that we see that really expands compared to chimps is not that species. That does expand, but much later, and that's associated with industrialization and sugar. But what we see is another group of um, what are generally considered health-associated streptococcus that are much more abundant in homo than they are in chimpanzees. And 
this was in some ways to me quite surprising. We didn't really know why did this group suddenly rise to really high levels. When we started looking at it, what is really interesting is it's not all streptococci. It's a very specific group of them. And it's a group that's known to have this really unusual ability. It's acquired a gene that allows it to capture salivary amylase, which is an enzyme we make in our own saliva that allows us to digest starch. It can capture it and use it to feed off of our dietary starches. It's the only bacteria, this group of streptococci, they're the only bacteria in our mouth that can actually digest our dietary starches. And we think because this one group got this ability, it did help them to expand their numbers and become the most abundant single group of bacteria within our mouths. So it's almost like these little fish that go inside the mouths of other fish to clean up their teeth. <laughs> yeah, it's really incredible. And so they seem to have really benefited from this ability that they acquired. It allows them not only to utilize the amylase to digest the starch in our diets, but it actually also helps them to better bind to our teeth. And so we think this double advantage that came in really helped them rise to high frequency. But this particular group is generally associated with good dental health. One of the things that was surprising to us is we weren't surprised to see it in living humans today. In fact, these genes were already known to be present. But what was interesting to us is they predate agriculture. They also predate humans because we find the same genes are also present in the oral bacteria of Neanderthals. And what that tells us is that this ability that these bacteria acquired began in the common ancestor of humans and Neanderthals. Now you're starting to push this back 600,000 years to our common ancestor in Africa. At that point, you're starting to talk about the period during which our brains are increasing in size and ultimately leading to humans. And so this is helping to solve an evolutionary puzzle we've had for a long time. We know that early in homo evolution, our brains suddenly became much bigger. And this is what helps us to develop the intelligence that characterize our species today. And we know that that change was almost certainly associated with a dietary shift because the brain requires a lot of energy. And we knew there must have been a change of a higher, more energy dense food that must have taken place. But no one has really known what that change was. And for a long time, people thought it was entirely a change towards improved hunting. And we're starting to think now that while hunting is important, it was starch consumption may have it also was... been really important. Exactly. So it was, it was gathering. Gathering, exactly. And this raises a whole other question that we don't know the answer to is when did humans first control fire? We don't know the answer to that question. But we do know that salivary amylase is much more efficient if you're consumed cooked starches. Here we are able to look through the evolutionary genomics of bacteria that have co-evolved with us. We can see adaptations that they've developed in response to our ancestors' behaviors, which then gives us clues as to what those ancestor behaviors were. I find that really exciting. So the next time I look in the mirror when I'm washing my teeth, I will just think of the primates that have gone before. Christina, <laughs> thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's amazing stuff, Tegan, don't you think? Absolutely. Let's get to biobanking now. Biobanking used to be called tissue banking, keeping specimens from people with certain diseases, often it was cancer, so they can be examined under the microscope or their genome analysed or even just saved in case a new development arises in the distant future, which, a bit like our oral microbiome story, makes it useful to go back and look at old samples with new eyes or new technologies. 
The trouble is that biobanking has often been an amateur affair with well-meaning surgeons, for example, having samples in their hospital freezer, which they don't share with anyone, or when they do, it's found they've been poorly preserved or too little is known about the patient from which the tissue has been taken. That started to change with a more organised approach across some states of Australia, and there's increasing interest in brain banking. But what form should a brain bank take? And is it really just a fridge full of brains from people with Alzheimer's disease, or is it more than that? Greg Sutherland is Associate Professor of Pathology at the University of Sydney and with his partner Amanda Rush has described what could be the brain bank of the future. Welcome to the health report, Greg. Yes, uh, thank you very much for having me. But what's the purpose of a brain bank? It's trying to get enough samples uh, together so we can understand um, why certain um, individuals are susceptible to diseases and in the case uh, brain diseases like perhaps Alzheimer's disease and why other individuals aren't. Biobanks actually enable sufficient tissues to to allow us to do experiments uh, that are large enough to try and solve those those problems. Well, I mean, the British have got a biobank with something like a million people involved. I mean, how big mm. does a brain bank have to be to be useful? So, so the, what you're talking about, the UK biobank, you know, they, they signed up uh, well, at least half a million, Sorry, half, half a million, million right, people. Yeah. yeah, and they um, measured them uh, in, in a number of ways over probably... 2,000 different measurements and then over a period of time they, they collect uh, questionnaire data about their lifestyles and all that type of thing. So they, they are a very large uh, biobank and they're also probably the archetypal biobank of their type in the world. Um, brain banks are classically a lot smaller than that um, and, and one of the reasons is that uh, the, the amount of tissue that we hold is quite large but um, there's also sort of logistical issues in, in getting brain tissue. So typically... Uh, a brain bank because like it's ours. not part of the workflow. Yeah. I mean, if you're taking a part of a yeah. tumor into a biobank, it comes out of the surgery. Yeah, out of surgery. No, no, absolutely, absolutely. So, two types of brain banks. One of them is uh, post mortem, which is the type of brain bank we run. There's also some um, brain banks often associated with uh, the area of cancer, which they can use biopsy samples. But in our case, we we have about 500 uh, brains, and around the world. Uh, by, uh, brain banks can get as, as large as um, carrying about uh, you know two thousand brains, but a, a long way uh, from as you said five hundred thousand people associated with the UK biobank. And, and in fact, it could be a living brain bank. So in other words, you can have uh, you can have samples which are perhaps virtual, like images. You could store MRIs. Yes. Yeah, yeah, patients' no, no, histories, uh, yes. that sort of thing. Yeah, well, this is this is a, a little bit along the lines of what we, what we've suggested in a in a recent article where we've we've said that um, brain bankers or, or scientists associate with them do do their experiments in in, in human uh, in our case post mortem tissue, but we've also got the same sort of skills and analytical skills. We could be working with. Um, tissue samples, for example, or as you said, uh, neuroimages, and and in that case, uh, because we're you know working with with data or or samples like serum samples that can many 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 more can be contained in, in, in one spot. We we can be working on many many thousands of people, and of course those people are alive. Um, one of the I suppose potentially sadder sides of of what, of what we do working with postmortem tissue is is the those uh, the patients have have by definition dis, uh, deceased. But uh, 
we could extend to use, to um, analysing samples associated or clinical samples. So that that would be a, a great thing for us uh, because the people are still alive and with a bit of luck, what we find can be used during their lifetime. Now, somebody listening to this might think, well, I'm happy to donate my brain. But in fact, it's not, yeah. that's not enough. You've got to know an awful lot about the person and their history for the brain to be useful because you don't know what you're looking at, really. Yes, and in your introduction, you made a, the very important points about biobanks need to have uh, tissue that's characterised the, the same way and stored the same same way because those potential confounders. But but yes, we the more we know about uh, people and how they've lived and their lifestyle factors, exposures, their comorbidities, uh, medications, etc. The, the you know the more post-mortem tissue becomes. How far off is this concept of a virtual brain bank where you bring together enough of this information uh, together in one spot and uh, enable people to share it? To some extent, we're doing we're doing it already. Um, we, as a as a director of a brain bank, we have about around about five hundred brains. But in terms of hypothesis generation for how my research associated research group uses that data, we actually use the UK Biobank. So, so we are doing that a little bit at at, at the moment. Um, what we would envisage, uh, for example, in New South Wales. I mean, New South Wales has this really interesting study called the uh, Forty Five and Up study. It's it's run by the Sachs Institute, and they've actually collected data on two hundred and fifty thousand uh, New South Welshmen over over a period of time. And so that would be a, a case where if some of those people were to do, donate their brains, then you know it would be would be fan fantastic. But in in the interim, also getting serum samples or, or imaging from those people um, would be you know it would be a great way great way forward. So, so that's that's one of the things we're advocating. Greg, thank you for joining us. That's the way that we want to solve some of the problems of the brain to go to the future. Thank you very much indeed. Yes, well, thank you for the opportunity. Greg Sullen is Associate Professor of Pathology at the University of Sydney. Norman, no. would you donate your brain to science? Yes, I would. Yeah. yeah I think I would too. Just go to waste otherwise. <laughs> it's a good brain. I think there's lots of scientists who'd like to study your brain. Uh, yeah, no, I don't think there'll be much of it left by the time you get it. <laughs> It'll just well, be frazzled. <laughs> Well, it's part of the show where we answer your questions, dear listeners. And of course, you can ask your questions by emailing us, healthreport at abc.net.au. And Norman, this first one comes from Francisco, and it's actually about brains. Um, it's about chemo brain, which is a little bit like COVID brain. Mm -hmm. uh, in the Health Report episode from the 17th of May, we were talking about sinonasal inflammation and the effects that this has on the brain, and particularly how the effects take place after being infected with COVID-19. And Francisco says uh, they had cancer and underwent chemotherapy, which left them with a chronic case of chemo brain, which sounds so similar to the effects we were describing and wondering what the relationship is here. Well, the relationship is probably what's increasingly being discovered about chemotherapy and radiation therapy to some extent as well, which is as part of their action, which is killing cancer cells, they create what's known as oxidative stress. So this is free radicals. This is where the body essentially rusts itself and it creates inflammation as well. In fact, there was a paper just in the last few days on this about chemotherapy and cancer therapy increasing body ageing, which is one of the side effects of it. This is kind of an inflammatory process which can affect um, the body in general um, and increase the rate of inflammation, the effect on blood vessels and so on. And therefore, it's not 
a surprise that it might affect the brain. I'm sure there are other theories behind why you might just be a bit foggy with chemotherapy, but it's probably the main one. So when we talk about oxidative stress, often in the sort of well-being space, there's this idea of like eat your fruit and vegetables, they're rich in antioxidants. Is that enough to overcome the level of oxidative stress that you'd be talking about with something like chemo? Well, what's been found is that the effect of cancer treatment is improved by the sorts of things that do reduce oxidative stress. Now, whether they actually work that way, but it's known, for example, that moderate to intense exercise improves the outcomes of cancer therapy. Um, It's also known that moderate to intense exercise increases nerve growth in the brain, particularly if you're doing gymnasium type work, which involves cognition as well, counting your reps and so on, remembering what you did before, things like that. And also, there's reasonable information that that a good diet that's kind of a Mediterranean diet, not too much red meat, lots of plant-based foods that's cooked with fresh herbs and spices and so on, which gives you a lot of natural antioxidants is good for you as well because taking antioxidant supplements has not been shown to be of benefit but mediterranean food i should really say cuisine is known to actually produce far more potent antioxidants than you can buy over the counter so it's likely those things do go together and another COVID-adjacent-ish kind of question from Lisa. Lisa had preeclampsia when she was pregnant 15 years ago and has also developed anaphylaxis during perimenopause. She's over 50. She's looking forward to having her COVID shot and is considering her risk factors because of the anaphylaxis, so not recommended to have Pfizer, and also because she's over 50 uh, in the line for AstraZeneca. But because of the preeclampsia, uh, there's a history of stroke in her families. She's had high blood pressure ever since. She's wondering what... Uh, AstraZeneca and her medical history, how they um, maybe affect her risk of blood clots? So a history of blood clots due to a problem like preeclampsia, which is a very complicated and poorly understood condition, which I should just explain to people listening. If you've never heard of it, it's high blood pressure, swollen ankles, maybe protein in your urine when you're pregnant. It gets worse towards the third trimester. And it is associated, if it's undetected and uncontrolled, particularly if high blood pressure goes out of control, with something called eclampsia, which is involved with uh, convulsions and has a very high maternal mortality rate. So it's a nasty disease which involves the blood vessels and other parts of the body as well. There is no evidence that a history of eclampsia, um, although I'm not sure it's been absolutely looked for, but it's a, these are different mechanisms from the one that you're, you get with this thrombosis, with thrombocytopenia syndrome. So I don't think that you need to worry too much, but don't take my word for it. Chat to your doctor. And a question from Jim about hernia operations in men. He's not sure if this is something we've covered before on the health report, but he's been putting off surgery for about two years now uh, and is worried about the after effects of it. Jim makes the point that most people seem okay after a mesh insertion, but some suffer severe chronic pain and so it has to be surgically removed and just wants uh, the latest medical advice on this. Mesh is really controversial. The mesh that's really caused a lot of problems is mesh that's inserted um, around the vagina to prevent prolapse, and indeed some people use it in the past to treat female incontinence. If you talk to colorectal surgeons who use mesh quite a lot, 
they have a go at their gynaecological colleagues and reckon one of the problems with the vaginal mesh is where it is and how it's placed. And they claim they don't get as many problems with mesh as others do. And general surgeons say the same thing. I'm not sure what the truth of the matter is. But certainly if a surgeon wants to put in mesh into your hernia repair and you're not entirely happy with that, there are other hernia techniques which may have a slightly higher failure rate that don't require mesh insertion. So you just need to have a conversation. I mean, when I was a lad and doing a little bit of surgery, we, we never used mesh and there were quite good hernia repair techniques that don't require it. But they do say that when it's there in the hernia, in the inguinal canal in men. In the groin. In the groin, they don't get as many problems as they do in the, in the vagina in women, around the you vagina in women. You mentioned a high failure rate for some of these non-mesh operations. What are we talking here? I can't quote you the recent figures um, on, on the failure rate comparison. I suspect that good randomised trials have not been done in this area, so we don't really know, and it's a bit anecdotal. But a good general surgeon will, you know, unless there's a huge defect which requires some, you know, so, uh, we're just stitching t existing tissues together is not going to make a difference. That's where mesh really has revolutionised hernia repairs. But sometimes hernias are small enough that you get a, good, a really good repair with just careful stitching and bringing things together. And one last question from Tom, and it's more of a science question than a health one. Uh, Tom keeps hearing about new strains of the virus, such as the ones from Brazil, South Africa, the UK, and has heard that if the virus mutates enough, certain vaccines won't be as effective, which is obviously a large problem. But Tom says for a new species to evolve, I thought that an isolated environment was required. So is it possible that by restricting travel between countries, we are enabling COVID evolution? Is there a way to prevent mutations from happening? So it's a good question, but it confuses animal evolution, which is why do you get a marsupial in South America and a marsupial in Australia? Uh, did the kangaroo you know, float across the Pacific um, or was it, was, was it the environment that changed things? And sometimes it's a bit of both, actually. So that's, that's animals. But what we're talking here about are new, are, are new versions of viruses. And viral evolution happens incredibly quickly. So a new species, an animal, takes millions of years or hundreds of thousands of years to evolve unless there's some concentrated event. But viral evolution occurs all the time. Um, so, for example, let's just take, well, let's switch mode to bacteria and antibiotic resistance. Taking an antibiotic causes evolution in the bacteria in your body, and that means that the mutations in the, the bacteria which resist the antibiotic happen very quickly. It happens to chemotherapy and cancer cells, again, very, very quickly. And it happens with the virus. And what happens with the virus is that every time it mutates, it makes a mistake. And most of these mistakes don't matter. But some of these mistakes actually accidentally confer an extra advantage to the virus, like it might be more contagious. And that's the, and that's the big one. And therefore, when you get social distancing or you get vaccines or you, you know, in some cases you get treatments, you can actually get a form of the virus that's more able to survive and spread itself compared to the other mutations of the virus. And there you get a new version of the virus. It's not a new species, but it's just a new version of the virus. And it's our behaviour 
um, and all sorts of other factors that make the difference. That's right. And in terms of Tom's last question, is is there a way to prevent mutations from happening? The answer is yes, it's to stop the virus from replicating. So the more hosts that it's in, the more people that it's managed to infect, the more opportunities it has to replicate and those uh, errors that could become advantageous are able to creep in. So our best way of stopping mutations and strains is by controlling the spread of the virus, um, hopefully, through effective vaccines. Yep, that's absolutely right. And it means getting vaccines to low and middle income countries. And we've seen the problem in India. Anyway, that's all we've got time for on the Health Report tonight. Our email address again, please send us your questions, healthreport at abc.net.au. And we'll see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.